What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Hey, if that's you, if you are not a Catholic yourself, maybe you were a Catholic, an active Catholic at one point in your life, stepped away for whatever reason, uh, or maybe you've never been a Catholic, uh, and, and you've got a question about the Catholic faith, we can help you out with that. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. If you're watching us on TV, you can participate as well. Our email address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there live right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio and off we go. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing reasonably well. Thank you. Interesting question here from Albert who says, your response recently to a questioner about the Genesis flood being real or myth was just wrong. According to the Catechism, Catholics can believe a literal interpretation of Genesis or a theistic evolution combination. Catholics cannot believe in Darwinian evolution since it takes God out of creation. Your response was wrong. You stated a, quote, minority of Christians probably believe the literal Genesis story in light of science. How do you know how many Christians believe this? For the record, Jesus believed in Noah, and he trumps your opinion. And again, that's from Albert. Hey, Albert. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the response. So uh, to be clear, um, I didn't intend to say, if I did say it, I would correct myself, because it's certainly not what I think. I wouldn't I wouldn't claim to, to make a statement about the percentage of Christians in the world that believe in a literal interpretation of Genesis. I have no idea what percentage of Christians believe that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, however, I'm fairly confident that it is a minority of Catholic scholars. Okay. Catholic biblical scholars, Catholic theologians, and for that matter, Catholic bishops, um, a minority of the authorities within the Catholic Church who would take a, a literal position on generous Genesis. That it, you know, they say the earth was created 6,000 years ago in exactly seven days, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Or that, mm-hmm. you know, Noah's flood really was a, a deluge that covered every square inch of the world in water and killed all the animal species except those that could fit on ark. I think you'd find precious few Catholic biblical scholars, theologians, uh, bishops, uh, members of the International Theological Commission, these, these kinds of institutions, very, very precious few, if any, that would take those stories at face value like that. And, uh, you know, and, and as to whether or not you can believe in Darwinian evolution and, and be a Catholic, well, it, you can't believe in a thoroughgoing materialism. And so a, a sort of modern neo-Darwinian materialism that excludes any, uh, any possible role for God in the creation of the world, of course, that's ruled out. 
Uh, but Darwinism, as I understand the theory, does no such thing. I mean, Darwin himself personally arrived at atheism, uh, but, but the theory is articulated by Darwin really doesn't necessitate one taking a position on God's intervention at all, one way or the other. It's, it's, a, it's a particular theory about the way natural selection affects the evolution of species, and that's mm-hmm. perfectly consistent with the belief that God underwrites the entire operation, uh, which is why someone like Father Nicanor Ostriaco of Providence College can host a website called uh, Thomistic Evolution, which is all about integrating uh, Thomistic philosophy and evolutionary theory, and why Pope John Paul II himself, in an address to the Pontifical Academy of uh, Sciences, uh, conceded that that uh, there's significant uh, evidence in favor of the theory of evolution, and that seems to be where his mind was going. So um, I feel like with Pope John Paul II, I'm on pretty firm ground as uh, with my Catholic bona fides. Well, there you go. Albert, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's an email now from Madison who says, My boyfriend is entering RCIA this week. Do you have any advice for how I can best support him without being overly enthusiastic? Yeah, if you don't want to come on like King Kong, do you? Yeah, so if he's, you appreciate that, if, if the boyfriend is entering really maybe kind of out of deference to you, and he's not sure how he feels about it, sounds like that's the, the issue. He's not jumping in with both feet. He's Could just be. exploring. Yeah. I, you know, I, my advice would be to let him explore. And, you know, faith has to emerge from the integrity of one's own conscience as a free act, and mm-hmm. it can't be compelled. And now there quite a few men down through history have well, if not been compelled, they've at least been heavily drawn to consider the Catholic <laughs> faith uh, in virtue of some young lady in their life. I mean, uh, the first uh, Catholic king of France, Clovis, right, uh, became Catholic on account of his wife, Clotilde, who was a Catholic. Oh. So a lot of that going on in history and into this day as well. But uh, but nevertheless, it, needs, it does need to be a free act. So, you know, you can be available to go to Mass with him, to pray with and for him. Obviously, you know, you're available for conversation and discussions of the faith if he wants to go there. But I also think you need to give him space to discover the faith for himself. Absolutely. Uh, And we thank you so much for your email, Madison. Here's one now from Rose. If I leave a signed paper stating that I don't want to be kept alive artificially, is that a sin? And in an emergency who gets to decide who, who, you know, who, when to disconnect a person without committing a sin? Yeah, thank you. So you're not obligated. You're not obligated as a Catholic to take every possible means to procl- to prolong your life, right? You're not obligated to do that. Um, you're obligated to take uh, reasonable means mm-hmm. when there is a well-founded expectation that you know you can, in fact, live and 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 in a way that's not. Um, debilitating to you or your family. So, for example, um, you know, let's say there's a medical intervention that could cure you, but uh, you don't have medical insurance, and the intervention is is so expensive mm-hmm. that it would it would bankrupt and wreck, you know, you and your family for generations, right? Yeah. Church says you're not actually obligated to do that intervention, right? Let's say you're very sick and there's an intervention that might cure you, um, but the the side effects of the intervention would just be absolutely devastating. And the prospects of you know, resuming normal life and coming back to health are pretty dim. The church says you don't actually have to do that intervention. What you can't do is you can't commit suicide. And that would include suicide by starvation. 
Okay. Or dehydration. Very good. And uh, Rose, thanks so much for your email. Hey, we've got phone lines open for you. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. It's called Communion with Dr. David Anders. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. And we're going to begin with Mike in Canton, Ohio, listening on the great Living Bread Radio. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today, sir? Is it permissible for a Catholic attorney ever to take a plaintiff's case in a divorce suit? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question, and the answer to the question is absolutely yes. Of course, of course. I mean, there are times when it is bordering on morally obligatory to sue for divorce. So, say, for example, uh, you have a battered woman, an abused woman, right? She needs to get the heck away from her abuser, and you need the protection of the state to ensure that outcome. She needs total separation from this guy. Whether or not they have a valid marriage, uh, the, the object number one here is get this, get this woman away. Uh, and the same thing is true for a man, right? A man who's in an abusive relationship, mm-hmm. or maybe he's married to a woman who's a, you know, addicted to drugs, and she's putting the family and the children at, in danger, these kinds of things. All kinds of reasons why that, that can be absolutely essential. Here's another one. Let's say, um, let's say uh, there's, no, uh, uh, there's no abuse, but um, um, as I've seen this happen a lot of times. I'm sure you have too. Um, wife thinks she's happily married, <clears throat> comes home one day, and you know, husband's standing in the kitchen with his bag packed, and he says, uh, I'm out of here. I'm off with my secretary. And um, and by the way, I'm I'm taking the house, the car, the kids, the dog, the pension, um, you know, the insurance policy, mm. uh, and this rubber duck, and I'll <laughs> you know, and I'll leave you a salt shaker, right? And not and I'm perfectly happy to leave you destitute. Well, um, that's not just, no. and she needs somebody to fight for her. Sure, absolutely. So there are all kinds of reasons why uh, you need mm. to, we need good Catholic family law attorneys out there doing their job and protecting. Um, the innocent parties in these kinds of horrific cases. Mike, thanks so much for your call. We hope that's helpful for you. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Again, if you're watching on TV today, you can uh, shoot us an email, ctc at ewtn.com. Let's go to Jerry now in Independence, Ohio, listening on AM 1260, the Rock. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, hey there, Dr. Anders. Thanks for taking my call here. Um, I had a question about the four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I wanted to know where their documents were found, where they were located, and uh, was it similar to, like, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Founding Cave? And who owns the rights to the Gospels? Does the Catholic Church own the rights to the Gospels? Yeah, thanks. Really interesting questions. I appreciate those. So the, the Gospels have been in continuous circulation within the Christian community since their composition. And most scholars date the Gospels to, you know, late 70s, 80 A.D., you know, into maybe around the year 100. Mm. So, um, th- And we, we, we know this both from manuscript evidence and from secondary sources that cite them and cite them as authorities and cite them as canonical. So they've been in continuous circulation. So there was never... There wasn't a period where you know, you know, some some sacred writer penned a gospel and then hid it, you know, hid it under his mattress and, you know, it vanished from sight for fifty years or a hundred years and then some, you know, some 
early enthusiastic archaeologists dug it up and circulated. It didn't work that way. They've, they've been copied and recopied and circulated from the very beginning. And and the the textual evidence of the Gospels' longevity, I mean, we have fragments of manuscripts that go back to the second century and whole codices containing all of the New Testament, you know, from late antiquity. And we have them across the ancient world and in multiple languages. We have them in the original Greek. We have them in Syriac. Um, we have them in Latin translation. We have them in other, in, in, in Coptic and other language translations. We have them uh, from Egypt, uh, you know, all the way to Western China. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they're, they're so widely disseminated in antiquity. And, and I mean, there's a whole branch of biblical scholarship called lower textual criticism that's involved in collecting and collating and comparing these manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts, trying to figure out what the, the preferred reading is, if they're variants. I mean, it's just a very well-established area of, uh, of scholarship. In terms of owning the rights to them, well, the Gospels are, you know, pretty well public domain by this point. You know, <laughs> yeah. I think in the United States, was the law is like life of the author plus 70 years. I think so, We've, yeah. we've surpassed that by any number of centuries. So, oh, yeah. You know, now, there are translations into, say, modern English mm-hmm. that are copyrighted because they're copyrighted to the translator, right? But the underlying texts are not. Um, and then, um, you know, there are, <coughs> there are compilations that are the work of critical scholarship. So, you know, f- so if a scholar, for example, goes out and he has, you know, 100 manuscripts from the Byzantine tradition and 100 manuscripts mm-hmm. from the Alexandrian tradition and he composes... You know, sort of weaves them together to come up with what he thinks is the best reading of the underlying text. Um, well, that that's a work of his own private scholarship, right? Yeah. And you could maybe copyright that, uh, but but in terms of the actual gospels themselves and the underlying text, yeah, they're they're they are they are absolutely part of the common good. About as public domain mm-hmm. as it gets, as right? Public domain as it All gets. All right, yeah. uh, Jerry. Thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. We do have uh, two lines open right now at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Adam is in Rochester, Minnesota, listening online EWTN.com. Hey, Adam, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi. I had um, asked a question about a month ago about my. It's actually two of my nephew's baptisms in the ELCA church where the pastor said, uh, you are baptized in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit instead of I baptize you. Um, and you had said that it wasn't valid uh, and to check the ELCA form in their handbook. And I did that, and um, it's the same as the Catholic one. And so they didn't follow their own uh, form. So I reached out to the bishop, and she had a nice response. Um but she said that they understand that the work of God is the work of God, and uh, that if a flawed human instrument is used, that the promises of God are made tangible in the sacraments, and they are secure. Uh, so she wanted me to talk with one of her staff members about it, just to discuss the theological basis of it. Um, so I was looking for any advice on what to say, and if uh, you can kind of clearly define why it is invalid. I think I know, but it'd be kind of nice to... I'll just have a little bit extra. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, here's a question that I would put to a Lutheran sacramental theologian, and that is, how do you know when there's a valid baptism? Yeah. Right? How do you know? I mean, like, for example, would it be a valid baptism if um, if if I if I dumped Gatorade over my child's head and baptized in the name of Huey, Dewey, and Louie? Would that, would that get the job done, right? 
um, what if I what if I smeared lotion on his knee and said I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Like you know, you could just play around with variants. And I'm not suggesting I'm being facetious, of course, about the Huey, Dewey, and Louie. But the idea is there is there's something definitive that is the rite of baptism. Now, the 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 Lutheran bishop's position that the flawed work of man doesn't eviscerate the grace of God. That's true, and the, that, that doctrine actually comes from Catholicism. That was worked out in the 4th century in the Donatist controversy between St. Augustine and the Donatists, and the argument was whether the moral status of the celebrant could affect the validity of the sacrament. Okay. You know, if my priest is a, is a pedophile, if he's a serial adulterer or a murderer or something, or an apostate, does his personal immorality invalidate the sacrament? <clears throat> and the Donatists said yes. They said yes, it does. And St. Augustine, who took the Catholic position, said no, it doesn't. Because, of course, it's Christ that's the grace mm, of the sacrament, of and the, the, the celebrant is just an instrument. Um, and, in fact, what, what renders the sacrament valid isn't the personal charism or the, or the, or the morality of the celebrant, but it's ex opere operato, the proper working of the work. Right? When the sacrament is done according to form, mm-hmm. then we have Christ's promise of assistance that it will be done validly and efficaciously. And so the, the, your Lutheran friend has applied an Augustinian principle, but applied it badly, right? A- assuming that the grace of Christ guarantees the presence of grace in the absence of a valid sacrament, right? And so the question remains, how do you know if you've when you ha- well, how do you know when a baptism has been performed? Like, what is the limit beyond which this is no longer baptism but something else? And so the uh, the canons in the Catholic Church on validity simply define that. They tell us here's how you know when a valid sacrament has been performed. Okay. Um, now, you know, in terms of the logic of the formula b- behind "I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit," um, baptism is received from the church. It is a rite of initiation into church, into mm-hmm. the church. It's not something that I uh, can reflexively apply to myself. Um, yeah, it is not an entirely passive act. There is, there is a conferring of this status uh, upon a person by an agent. And so, you know, you are baptized might be a factual description after the fact but it is not, in fact, a conferring of the sacrament from one person to another, yeah. one who stands as a representative of the church initiating another into that fellowship. Now, here is another thing that is true, and this would be true, I think, of your Lutheran friend. God can certainly extend sanctifying grace to someone in the absence of a valid sacrament. That's, of course, true. Mm. That's, of course, true. All right? and uh, But, of course, he... In the absence of a valid sacrament, we don't have the objective assurance that he has, in fact, done so. So the, re- the sacraments are not there to bind the grace or to somehow restrict the grace of God. They're there for our benefit so that we know with assurance that the thing has been done. And so yeah, the, the, the way your Lutheran friend has twisted the Augustinian theology has really undercut the whole reason for the Augustinian theology, which is I don't have to depend on the morality of the celebrant. Give me an objective, tangible sign where Christ's promise of divine assistance always 
holds, mm-hmm. right? So that I can know for sure that I've been admitted into the church. And the and the canonical formula is, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, Adam, is that helpful for you? Oh yeah, that definitely gives me a lot lot to talk about. So. All right, appreciate your call. It is uh, called Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, perhaps you'd like to explain uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. 833-288-EWTN. Here is Jerry now in Cleveland, listening on AM 1260, The Rock. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind today, sir? Um. <clears throat> Love your show. My son passed away about six weeks ago, hmm. and I'm having a hard time dealing with it. And I'm just wondering, does my son know that he died, and does he remember his last moments on earth? Jerry, I am so, so, so sorry to hear about the loss of your son. I cannot imagine how difficult that must be. My heart goes out to you. Our prayers go out to you. I I really want you to know how 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 seriously we take that. I'm so sorry. Uh, In terms of what did the dead know, sacred scripture, at least as I read it, would seem to suggest that they know quite a lot. Um, And there are a few places in scripture where we actually kind of see peer beyond the veil, as it were. There's a passage in Revelation, for example, where uh, the martyrs um, are crying out to God for justice. I mean, that that clearly indicates that they pretty well, darn well, know what happened to them in the last moments of their life, and they want God to do something about it. Thank you very much, you know. Uh, when Moses and Elijah appear on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, they they know very well that they're Moses and Elijah, and they know that they're talking to the Messiah. I mean, mm. they're, so they're, I, I think there's every reason to believe that, yes, the, the dead in Christ— uh, know things, and in particular, they know the essence of God. I mean, they, if they're in heaven, they experience the beatific vision. They know all things in God, who, of course, knows all things. So uh, every reason to suspect that. And, and, of course, the whole practice of the Catholic faith of seeking the intercession of saints presumes their active interest in affairs on earth. Jerry, please know of uh, our, our sympathies and our prayers for you and for your son as well. Thank you so much for your call. Let's go to Karen now, a first-time caller from San Antonio, listening on the Great Guadalupe Network. Uh, Karen, what's on your mind today? Uh, yeah, hi. Thank you for my for taking my call. Um, I I get a question um, about the validity of the Gospels, and it's because that why did it take like thirty years for them to be written, and could there be a lot of lost in translation within those thirty years? And I don't have a response for that. <laughs> sure. So first of all, why on earth would anyone imagine? I mean, what, why, why would you imagine, not you specifically, Karen, but why would one imagine that the Gospels would ever have been written any sooner than that? I mean, Jesus himself does not seem to have given any specific instruction about writing down his words. Uh, on the contrary, the instruction that Christ gave was to individuals to share what they knew of his message from personal acquaintance. Mm-hmm. To the disciples, he said, go into all nations and make disciples, teach them everything I've commanded you. Um, no indication that Christ suggested they should write down a gospel. And, of course, uh, in the first 30 years of the church, the church lived by the testimony of the apostles and by sacred tradition. When St. Paul, who was the earliest writer of the New Testament, wants to refer to the body of you know, the deposit of faith, he, he references the oral tradition about Christ 
and the liturgical tradition that Christ had instituted. And that was sufficient to convey the deposit of faith. And uh, when the Gospels were written, say 30 years later, we're, you know, a, a generation now removed from the initial apostles, and uh, and the gospel writers, well, you know, it would be, stand to reason that they want to reduce that tradition to writing and disseminate it more widely. The, the author of Luke tells us explicitly that it was, for him, a matter of research. I mean, he, but it, mm. you know, he was going to the local library and flipping through the card catalog, you know, <laughs> the, the first century equivalent thereof. Yeah, very good. And uh, Karen, thanks so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. In a moment, we'll talk with Kim somewhere in the Midwest. We have lines open for you as well at 833 833- 288-EWTN for Call to Communion. Stay with us. It's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We do have a couple lines open, so if you want to call now, hopefully we can get you on today's program. Hey, our friends at Guadalupe Radio Network need to hear from you next week. They're airing their fall share next Tuesday through Friday. So if you're listening to any of their 45-plus radio stations in Texas, Kansas, New Mexico, Washington, D.C., Virginia, Alabama, or Florida, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station. All right, back to the phones now. Here is Kim in the Midwest listening on WTJW. Hello, Kim. What's on your mind today? I just wanted to add, I am a Protestant. I am not a Catholic, um, but I have gotten great benefit out of listening to all the Catholic radio channels. And um, I just wanted to hear your answer to um, why pray to the saints. Yeah. Thanks, Kim. I really appreciate the question. If I might, I might ask you a question about your own prayer life. I assume if you're Protestant, you go to church. You probably have Christian friends that you go to church with. I wonder if you've ever asked any of them to pray for you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. For a Catholic, that is exactly the same thing that's going on. Our relationship to the saints, the only difference between our relationship to the saints and your relationship to your living Christian friends is that our friends are living in heaven. And of course, they they're not they don't hear us by you know telephone or text message or something like that. The Spirit of God has to get involved to make our prayers known to them. But but the logic of the relationship is identical. So we're not we're certainly not worshiping the saints. We're not bowing down and offering them sacrifices. You know, we're not we're not adoring them as God. We think that they are Christians like we are, who are participants in the body of Christ like we are, who have a relationship to God like we do. And that they, like we love to pray for our loved ones, they also like to pray for their loved ones, and those loved ones include us. Now, there's one other element, and that is that, as you know from the book of James, the Apostle James says that the prayer of a righteous man is very effective. And James also says, in the very same letter, he kind of rebukes his audience and says, you guys are praying and not getting what you ask for. And you want to know why? It's because you pray with wrong motives. Mm. But a righteous man, his prayer is very effective. And so there's a distinction we find in the Bible between people who are righteous who pray and people who maybe not so righteous who pray. That's why God, in the end of the book of Job, he turns to the Job's companions and he says, I will not hear your prayers. But if you ask my servant Job to pray for you, I'll listen to him. Go look it up if you don't believe me. There it is. Or Abraham, when he pled with God for Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, uh, you know, if I can find 10 righteous people, will you spare everybody else? God says, yeah, for the sake of the ten righteous, I'll spare the many wicked, or, or after the golden calf. 
in the book of Exodus, God says, I'm wiping out all Israel. And Moses says, oh, don't do that, God. Remember your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And God says, well, yeah, y'all right. You got me. You got me. <laughs> For the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because you ask, Moses, I won't do this thing. So this, this idea that the righteous can intercede for the wicked runs all throughout the Bible. In fact, that's the logic of the atonement of Christ, right? The ultimate righteous person whose death intercedes on behalf of everyone, right? And, but that's sort of, it's woven into all of our relationships, right? It's preeminently true of Christ, of course, but it's, it's true of you and me and, and Abraham and St. James and all the rest of them. And so the saints are our friends who pray for us just like we pray for one another, but they're also those who have been made perfect in holiness, and so they're sort of uber-righteous, if you will. And, uh, and we find this in Scripture, right? So if you look at the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 8, you'll see that the saints in heaven are all depicted as offering our prayers to God. And that language is a direct reference to a book that's probably not in your Bible, but it is in the Bible the Apostles used, in the Catholic Bible, the book of Tobit, where the archangel Raphael says the exact same thing, that his mm -hmm. job was to offer the prayers of the faithful to God. So it's really kind of a citation back to ancient Jewish practice as well. And then also the book of Second Maccabees, another book that's not in your Bible but was in the ancient Christian Bible, uh, where we see the prophet Jeremiah, who's dead and gone, um, is depicted as praying on behalf of the people of God. The Judeans are getting ready to go into a war, mm. right? So, so uh, in the New Testament and the Catholic Old Testament, we see that practice of praying for the dead. And, and it's been part of Christian practice from the very beginning, right? So it's not something the Catholic Church made up, you know, say, four centuries after the fact. Um, in fact, if you, are, if you want to track the progress of Christianity in the ancient world, archaeologically, mm -hmm. the way you do it is you see the church buildings are fairly late. Early Christians didn't have church buildings. You know, they'd meet in homes. Sure. They also met in cemeteries. Why do they meet in cemeteries? Because they would gather to celebrate the Eucharist at the tombs of the martyrs. Mm. And that's actually the origin of church buildings. Buildings got built up around shrines to the martyrs. And so if you want to track the progress of Christianity in the ancient world, what you do is you track the veneration of the saints and their relics. And you can read somebody like the historian Peter Brown or the historian Ramsey McMullen, who both write about this at length. And uh, in fact, you can't go anywhere in ancient Christianity, east, west, north, south, and not find the veneration of saints, the intercession of saints and, and their relics. Uh, in fact... That practice is more widespread in ancient Christianity than even belief in the divinity of Jesus. Wow. So, you know, if you know church history, you know, in the fourth century, there was a big debate over, is Jesus God? There were a lot of people who said no. <clears throat> a lot of people who said no. Huge portions of the, of the Christian world that denied the full divinity of Christ. Mm. You know what none of them denied? That the saints pray for us. I mean, it's just—it's it, scriptural, it's logical, it's existentially satisfying, uh, and it's so well embedded in Christian history that there's—you literally can't go anywhere in the Christian world and not find it, except when you get to 16th century Protestantism in Northern Europe. Mm. So you you got to wait 1,500 years for one tiny little corner of the Christian world to say they're not going to do this practice anymore. When literally everybody else, everywhere else, from day one has always done it. 
Well, there you go. Hey, Kim, a great, great question. Thanks so much for your call, and we hope that is helpful for you. It's called a Communion here on EWTN. A couple lines open at the moment, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. We have an anonymous email here, David. Uh, this person says, During Mass last weekend, the priest gave a homily about how the church does not listen to women. And then he invited a longtime catechist from our parish to give a reflection on the gospel reading. So I'm curious to know if it's licit to have a lay person make remarks between the homily and the intercessory prayers. Um, yes. Okay, thank you so much. So first of all, let me, let me say this thing about the church not listening to women. Um, I wonder if this fella has ever tuned into EWTN. <laughs> I wonder if this fellow has ever heard of a nun named Mother Angelica, mm, right? Yeah. Um, who is probably, if you were to measure in terms of how many people have heard this woman's voice proclaim the gospel, I would I would I would venture to say that probably more people have heard Mother Angelica, like physically heard the sound mm -hmm. of her voice proclaim mm -hmm. the gospel, than perhaps any other Catholic in the history of the world. To actually hear the sound of her voice pronounce the gospel, yeah. probably no one on the planet has, no Catholic on the planet. Mm -hmm. Billy Graham would probably be, you know, on the Protestant side, yeah. but within the Catholic Church, probably no Catholic in history has ever had the sound of her voice, or his voice for that matter, resound more widely than, than that of Mother Angelica, mm -hmm. right? Who was a Catholic nun, a religious, um, who definitely spoke for and to the church, right? Um, I, I'm thinking about Catherine of Siena now, of course, a late medieval mm -hmm. laywoman, third order Dominican woman, who uh, went to Avignon, and told the Pope to get his stuff together <laughs> and get back where he belonged in Rome. And she rebuked a, a sitting pontiff who gulped and said, ma'am, yes, ma'am, and packed <laughs> it up and went because yeah. of the power of her personal charism and, and personality, right? Uh, kind of a prophetess. Uh, I wonder about Mother Teresa of Calcutta. I mean, honestly, throughout the world in the 20th century, was there a Catholic that people listened to more than Mother Teresa? I mean, like, look, I like papal encyclicals as much as the next theologian, right? And I read them. No one else does, <laughs> right? It's a pretty small crew that mm. actually sits down and read reads what popes have to say, right? Bishops read them and theologians read them. But in terms of the man on the street, it was Mother Teresa all day long, right? I mean, I could just... I just think it's an absurd hypothesis, right? Um, it's not true that the church doesn't listen to women or that women don't have a voice in the church. Now, to be sure, there are chauvinistic, bigoted Catholic men, and maybe some of them are bishops, who may dismiss something because a woman said it. What idiots, if that's the case? I mean, certainly not beyond their, the church to have idiots sometimes in positions of authority. But what idiots? What idiots? But to the point of your question, is it permissible to have a woman... Uh, or anybody, or layperson for that matter, give a reflection on the on the gospel readings between the homily and the intercessory prayers. So, 
the church says you absolutely have to have a cleric deliver the homily. Right. Absolutely have to have a cleric deliver the homily. And there is no place in the rubrics indicated for lay reflection on the readings. Okay? Um, uh, you know, I have been asked to speak at masses before, and I'm a lay person. And, and when I have once or twice had that opportunity, I've always made sure that when I talk is at a time at the Mass when there's no chance that somebody confuse what I'm doing with a homily, okay? And uh, that's the danger, because the homily has to be delivered by a cleric. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so you're, you're really skirting the line, I think. And particularly when you set it up by saying, you know, the church doesn't listen to women, that's my homily, now we're going to hear from sister so-and-so and miss yeah. so-and-so. Yeah. What you're, you're, you're dangerously close to making this a de facto homily, and I think that's the point. I mean, that, that, that seems to be, technically mm-hmm. he probably was within the bounds of the law because he preached a quote-unquote homily, but he set the thing up such as to suggest that this was really a kind of protest homily. This was a kind of uh, answer to what he regarded as a de- deficit in the church's internal structure that mm-hmm. he and all his righteous wisdom was going to correct by this little innovative liturgical move. Um, kind of so, muddies the water, So I it? think, yeah, I mean— would it, would, is it prosecutable? Probably not. Yeah. Was it uh, was it imprudent and injudicious? Absolutely. All right. And uh, thanks. And so not m- not because the person was a woman, not right. because, no, no, no. but because the person was a a lay person. That's why. That's why. Right. So let let him preach his w- wimpy little ho- uh, homily, <laughs> and then invite everybody over to the parish hall for you know a two hour lecture by a female theologian that probably can run circles around him. Mm-hmm. There you go. Thanks so much for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN. Be sure to join us for a wonderful program we bring you every weekend. It's a great way to start the weekend, too. EWTN News In-Depth with Monse Alvarado. That's coming to you Friday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio and Television. Our roundtable discussion series with in-depth interviews, unapologetically examining and analyzing important issues, news, and events from an authentically Catholic perspective. Do check it out, EWTN News In-Depth with Monse Alvarado. That's coming up for you Friday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio and Television. Back to the phones now for Ann in Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey there, Ann, what's on your mind today? Hi, Dr. Anders, and... Tom, thank you so much for your program. Um, Dr. Anders, I um, listen to you every day, and I really enjoy um, your clear laying out of just the, I don't even know how to say it, the the, um, brilliance of the Catholic faith. Um, I'm a convert of 12 years as well, and the reason I'm calling is uh, because you're supposed to come to Omaha um, on the 19th and speak at Christ the King Church, and I um wanting to invite a friend, and she is not Catholic, and she asked me if it was going to be geared towards converting non-Catholics uh, to the Catholic Church, and I told her I don't believe that's what the talk is geared toward, um, but um, 
more along the lines of having a relationship with Christ in the Catholic Church, as, as what the, the poster says. And I just wanted to do- double-check with you that um, I'm telling her the right thing. Okay, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Well, as it happens, I was actually working on the manuscript for that talk this morning, ah. so I can tell you what I have in mind to do. Okay. okay? And um, it is possible that a Protestant listening to my talk might find it a bit polemical, in that mm-hmm. I'm going to tell the story, at least in part, of how I went from being an evangelical Protestant to being a Catholic. But I've told that story many times with a different focus. In this talk, I'm going to specifically address the question of how I understood relationship to Christ, what that phrase means mm-hmm. in spirituality, as an evangelical Protestant, and now as I understand it as a Catholic. And you know, I I wasn't anticipating a heavily Protestant audience, you know, at a Catholic church. Mm-hmm. So my, my real target here is not the Protestant that I wish to convert to Catholicism. It's the Catholic that I want to convert to Catholicism. All right, because I have a personal opinion. I'll get into this more in the talk that mm-hmm. the language of personal relationship with Jesus, which really takes its provenance, its origin comes from 19th and early 20th century Protestantism. But before that, you don't really find that phraseology in Christian spirituality. You don't even find it with the Protestant reformers, right? Um, uh, but it's it's entered into the Catholic lexicon. And so Catholic people are now very eager. I mean, they're, they're as eager as anybody else to proclaim that they have a personal relationship with Jesus. My concern is that in using the verbiage, they may unwittingly take on a lot of the connotation that Protestants freight into that terminology, mm, right? Okay. So they they start to think that, you know, what really counts is this quote-unquote relationship with Christ conceived, whether they know it or not, in largely Protestant terms, to which they then add a lot of Catholic baggage, as it were, you know? Okay. And that's kind of the way Protestants caricature Catholicism. They'll say, yeah, maybe there's a Catholic that has a real relationship with Jesus, but, you know, he adds all this unnecessary Catholic stuff on top. And I really want to try to disentangle the notion of relationship with Christ in a way that you, you're not left thinking that the Catholic stuff on top is a bunch of detritus, you know, this kind of excess baggage that you don't really need or a kind of embellishment mm-hmm. to something that is ultimately subjective and it's my personal relationship and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that within the Catholic Church, we have quite a robust relationship with Jesus, but it's framed around things like the sacraments and the corporate life of the Church and imitation of Christ's life and character in the Gospels. Um, and uh, And you really can't you know, have the one without the other. You can't have a fully authentic relationship with Jesus without the means of grace that Christ gave to us. All right. So is there a little bit of a polemical edge against Protestantism in the talk? Well, yeah, but only to the extent that I want Catholics to fully embrace the Catholicity of their faith and, and not think they have to become crypto-Protestants in order to have a relationship with Christ. Because that language, of course, does come originally from mm-hmm. Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thanks so much for your, for your call today. Let's go from Ann to Anders. Anders is a first-time caller in Yakima, Washington, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Anders, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, Dr. Anders. I was just curious. I've been reading a lot about a preteristic interpretation yep. of the Olivet Discourse and the Book of Revelation. Yep. And so I was 
hoping to get clarity and hear what you think about that, what the church thinks about that. And yep, I'll- absolutely. By the way, killer, killer first name, man. Absolutely killer first name. Anders. Anders, yeah. Love it. Um, so you, you might be surprised to learn that preteritism was invented by Catholic theologians. It is a Catholic idea. So let's define preteritism for the sake of those who aren't read up on the subject. Preteritism is a view of New Testament, New Testament apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is all that end-of-time stuff that you get in the, in the New Testament, especially the book of Revelation, but also the Olivet Discourse. It is a way of interpreting New Testament apocalyptic that says that that apocalyptic language had as its reference point not the end of the space-time universe— but the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so the end of the world, as it were, took place when the old covenant was done away with and the new world of the Christian church was inaugurated and the destruction of the temple was the destruction of a world, as it were. And say, for example, the Sunday feast, the feast of our Lord's resurrection, takes place on the eighth day of the week signaling, again, as it were, a new creation. Mm. The incarnation of Christ itself is understood in Catholic theology to be the birth of a second Adam. Now, why did—it was actually Jesuits—why uh, did Jesuit theologians in the early modern period come up with the preterist interpretation of New Testament apocalyptic? It was because Lutheran and Calvinist theologians were alleging that the, the Pope— and the Catholic Church were uh, the beast and the antichrist of the book of Revelation. And they were reading apocalyptic as if it applied in their own contemporary society, and the characters in the book had, had you know, specific reference within, within the Catholic Church. And so the, the Jesuits said, well, that can't be the case because these books don't even refer to the 16th century or the 17th century. Mm-hmm. They, they refer to Christian antiquity. Now, um, preteritism was a novel interpretation of those texts. I mean, it's not the it's not the one that was dominant, you know, throughout the Middle Ages. That was the Augustinian model of what's called amillennialism. Um, but um, uh, uh, but nevertheless, it is an allowable opinion. Okay, well, and we do appreciate your call, Anders. Thank you for checking in today. And let's go now to Carl in Olympia, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Carl, what's on your mind today? Yeah, my question is about the Tetragrammaton, and where the question comes from is, um, in the six creative days in Genesis, as God is creating the universe and life as we know it, as he's creating these things, he inspired the writer to give them names, like um, light and dark and day and night and earth and seas and heaven. And then he creates man... He gives man a name. He gives he gives the man a name, Adam, and then he gives that man the um, the job of naming all the animals. That's his job. And then after sin, it were informed that Adam names his wife Eve. And then a little later in the Bible, um, we know that Abraham and Sarai or Sarai, their names get changed from Abram. Abraham and Sarah, um, and then Jacob, his name. Uh, Carl, Carl, we are running out of time. Do you have a question for us? Yeah, just 
names are very important throughout the Bible. Like God says, all the stars are named. So why is the Tetragrammaton removed? That's the name that God gave himself to Moses. Yeah, thanks. So I wasn't aware that it was removed. Uh, uh, I mean, you can find, I mean, you can find the uh, the Hebrew name of God throughout the scriptures. So how 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 do you allege that it was removed? Um, because I guess because Lord and God, it, it often read as Lord and God. Oh yeah. Oh sure, 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 sure. Well, that's not in the Hebrew. I mean, the, 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 the name, you know, Y-H-W-H, with mm-hmm. the, the way we transliterate it into English, you'll find that in the Hebrew manuscripts, uh, you know, of the Old Testament from start to finish uh, as the proper name of God. But, but as you know, I'm sure you know this, but within, within a, a Masoretic practice, the Masoretes were the Jewish scribes that transcribed the Hebrew text. Hebrew originally did not have vowels. It, just, it was just um, consonants. And eventually, they did inv- invent a system of vowel, they're called vowel pointings, between the consonantal letters. Mm-hmm. But because of the rabbinic practice of not pronouncing the divine name, when they would read the text aloud in synagogue, they didn't want to say the name Yahweh out loud. And so, in the vowel pointings, instead of writing the vowels for Yahweh, they would insert the vowels for Adonai as a clue to the reader to mm-hmm. not say the divine name, but rather to say Adonai, okay. which means Lord, like with a lowercase l, Lord, okay? And out of deference to that uh, Masoretic tradition, English language translations <coughs> will differentiate Adonai from Yahweh by using capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D to reference the Tetragrammaton, mm. uh-huh. and then, you know, L, lowercase r, L, O, R, D, to reference Adonai or other or other you know divine titles, uh, but it's still there. And if you know how the thing works uh, with the conventions of translation, or you know the text is still there. And there you go. Appreciate your call there, Carl, and uh, appreciate that. Uh, we could not get to Keech in Lokachar, Kenya, Africa, checking in on YouTube today, uh, but we're going to hold that over until our next program, and we hope that you're listening at that time. Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern. Check out uh, the podcast anytime by going to EWTN.com forward slash radio, and then just look for the word podcast. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next time on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless.